And now we're going to get into the new material here on page 45, the imputation of Adam's sin. And this is going to ha- going to bring us some uh, some questions as well, uh, because we discover that the sin that Adam inculpated us with uh, is 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 given to us really apart from our participation in it, apart from our uh, you know agreement with him. We are simply born in this, and this seems rather unfair, and that's going to be one of the major problems that we're going to have to address here. Uh, but let's establish first that, in fact, Adam's sin was imputed to us. And I'd like to read a larger section than is there in your notes, if I may. I'm going to read uh, uh, Romans 5, 12 through 19, because I think it, I think we, we see a little bit in that hole that's uh, better than just those three verses I have there. So let me read that here. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through that sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there was no law. Nonetheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment as Adam had, who was in the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not uh, like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man sin reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so we're gonna, we're, we want to look here at uh, how, or, uh, how, how we come to have original sin. Remember, we defined original sin uh, last week as that state in which we are born. And it is comprised of two aspects, the imputed guilt of Adam and the inherited sin nature that is indirectly uh, from Adam uh, through through, uh, the procreation process. So let's look here at this imputation of sin. This is the, this is, this is how Adam's sin inculpated us. And I use that word. I probably should define that. Okay. Uh, uh, culpability or guilt is a liability to punishment. Okay. So when I say that Adam's sin inculpated us all, what I'm saying is when Adam sinned, we were made liable to punishment for his sin. That's what I mean by that term here. So let's look at this. You know, we all recognize here as we read through this passage uh, that sin in the human race is somehow linked to Adam's sin. Okay, that 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 can't be denied. Uh, somehow our sin is connected to Adam's sin, but the theories of the nature of that link between our sin and Adam's is debated. I'm going to look through three major views here. Uh, that we've seen in church history. And uh, uh, as you can see, I'm going to re- reject the first two and uh, accept the latter. The Pelagian theory. Okay, Pelagius, uh, fourth century figure, lives around the same time as Augustine, shortly before him. Um, and uh, he was of a mind uh, that uh, that mankind was perfectly capable of rectifying his own problems. Uh, he, he, he was able to, uh, to, you know, pull up the, his own bootstraps 
and choose the right and, uh, and, and upend what Adam has done. He believed based on key texts such as Deuteronomy 24.16 and Ezekiel 18.20 that individuals are born innocent and cannot be inculpated for sins that are not their own. Okay? Uh, and uh, We could look at these passages, but let me just give you the gist of both of them here. The idea is that a child can't be held guilty for the sin of his father. And this is part of the Mosaic Code. This is sort of a, a general principle that we find to be a, you know, a, a, an expression of justice here. A child can't be held guilty for the sin of his father. Each child, each person must bear his own guilt, not the guilt of another person. And so the whole idea that we could be held guilty for Adam's sin, it would seem, based on these verses, is unfair. It's unjust. It is opposed to the divine law. Okay? So, what does Pelagius say? Well, in when he sees Romans 5 speaking of the imputation of Adam's sin, he says it simply means that we all sin in the pattern of Adam. So, Adam gave us a bad example and we all follow his example and sin. And then we are condemned on the same basis he is. We are disobedient. Okay? So men can only have their own sins imputed to them. Okay? But there's several problems with this theory. Firstly, the scripture clearly teaches that Adam's sin is imputed even to those who do not sin after Adam's pattern. Now the context here, we see that sin is not imputed where there is no law, but death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So in other words, from Adam to Moses, we don't have a law code uh, like we get at uh, Mount Sinai, right? There's no law code. And for that reason, the people who sinned between Adam and Moses were still held guilty for Adam's sin, and they still sinned, although they did not sin in exactly the same way because they didn't have a set of rules given to them directly by God like Adam had and like those under Moses had. And I think we can perhaps expand it beyond that too, right? There are a lot of folks that are born today who don't sin by consciously breaking commandments. Infants, for instance, children, very small children, are held guilty. You know, they they come from the womb speaking lies, right? Uh, In sin my mother conceived me. We saw this from uh, Psalm 51 and Psalm 58. Uh, Both of these statements say that there are those who do not sin after the pattern of Adam and yet are still accounted guilty for his sin. And that's an important point. Pelagius says we simply follow uh, Adam's example. But uh, Paul says here in Romans 5 that not all people do follow Adam's example in sinning, and yet they are held guilty. So he's, he's incorrect. Uh, from based on these verses. Secondly, we find that death and condemnation are universal strictly because of the sin of Adam. And we we find as we work through those four for those five verses, Romans five fifteen to nineteen, we find death, all death, is linked to the condemnation of the one. It, it, it's it's not if if you look at the language, it's not Adam sinned and so Adam died. And I sin, and therefore I die. But rather, Adam sinned, and therefore I died. Okay? So it is the one man, the sin of the one man, not the sin of the many that condemn the many, but the sin of the one condemns the many. So that sin that Adam committed, in some sense, covers the entire human race that follows him. So the argument is twofold. Firstly, it's not Adam's example but his sin that brings condemnation to all. 
And then secondly, if I can follow up on that, the idea that all necessarily die by following Adam's example seems to be a paradox for, for Pelagius. Pelagius is big on human freedom. You know, it, it, it's not that man had to sin. He just chose to sin by following Adam's example. But the funny thing is, every single person necessarily follows Adam's example. <laughs> and and so that, that sort of, I think, sort of flies in the face of Pelagius's idea. All persons will and must sin after Adam's pa- pattern seemingly denying them the very free will that he want that he wants so badly everyone die everyone sins everyone dies letter c and we've already said this it's already been clearly established that not all die because of personal and voluntary sins against a command but because of the sinful state or disposition in which we are born and finally and probably the most important one here is the argument of the entire passage that we just read. Suggests that Romans 5 denies that we share Adam's guilt is to destroy the force of Paul's argument. Just as all men are rendered guilty before God because of guilt for a sin that was not theirs, so also mankind can be made righteous before God by a righteousness that is not theirs. You, you, see the, you see the analogy here that's being made? Just as Adam sinned and all those he represented died, so also Christ was righteous and all those he represented became righteous. Okay, So whatever is true of the one is true of the other. And so if you want to deny that uh, that Adam's sin inculpated us all, okay, but what you're going to have to do then, according to this argument, is to deny that Jesus' righteousness can do anything for us either. Pelagius actually, actually argued that. He said that Jesus' righteousness actually couldn't do anything for us. He denied what we know as the uh, the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Rather, when Jesus went to the cross, he was simply going to give us a moral example. He wasn't there to take away our guilt and to grant us his righteousness. Rather, he was simply going to the cross to give us a good example to follow. Okay? Of course, that is, you know, contrary to the whole of the uh, Christian system. And we've, we've already looked at that last semester. Uh, when we looked at the doctrine of Christ and the atonement, okay, uh, you know, I, if I can, if I can throw this out here, the, uh, you know, there was, a, there was sort of a, a flurry of, of, of sort of a Christian fad uh, right in the 1990s and and such, where people would wear these little bracelets called that had "What would Jesus do?" WWJD, "What would Jesus do?" And that's a reflection of this theory, okay? Uh, in fact, that, that phrase actually comes from a little book, uh, written by a fellow by the name of Sheldon, who wrote the book In His Steps, a phrase that's borrowed from Second Peter, uh, that Christ died giving us an example that we might walk in His steps. So on, on the surface of things, uh, we say, okay, that it's true that Jesus did die, in order to give us an example for us to follow. But is that the primary reason that he died? Of course, this is what Pelagius believed. This is what theological liberalism believed, particularly back in the 19th century when this book was written. Okay. Uh, when this, so, so the, the, the basic, the basic thrust of the book, or there's two young men, uh, who lived in a, uh, in a sort of a, a representative town of New England. Uh, during the day, and they had observed that uh, the city had, the town in which they lived had become exceedingly corrupt, and they wanted to fix it. And so they decided that they were going to live by this mantra, what would Jesus do? And they would encourage everyone around them to ask the question, what would Jesus do in whatever situation we happen to be in? And, and as that little question began to circulate and and uh, be adopted by the majority within their town the town was 
was remediated. It became a, a wholesome place to live. And so that, and, and so this, this idea of asking what would Jesus do began to be seen as sort of the point of, of the scriptures. Okay. The point of Christ's work on the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? So that we would follow his example, pull up our bootstraps, become righteous, become holy and save the world. So, you know, save our town, save our community, save our society. And that's what Christianity became rather than an individual work whereby Christ removes our guilt and grants us his righteousness uh, that we might be uh, brought into his kingdom, into into heaven, okay? And so the gospel is actually changed as a result, ultimately, of this view of sin, okay? So it's very important that uh, we understand this. So so don't, you know, you, you hear me talking about Pelagius and all that. You say, well, some, some guy who lived 1,600 years ago, how does this possibly affect us? Well, because his theories persist, in fact, they're probably shared by one or more of your neighbors. And that this is how people look upon sin and righteousness and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus simply came to make the world a better place. And that's simply not true, as Romans 5 here tells us. Okay, Which brings us then to the Arminian position. Arminius was a, was a contemporary of John Calvin living in the uh, uh, 17th century, early 17th century. Um, and uh, we're familiar perhaps a little bit more with the idea of Arminianism, but maybe not too, okay? So he argues again in principle from those two texts above that a child cannot suffer for the sins of his father. He argued against the possibility of culpability by proxy. Okay, so you can't be guilty of another person's sins. But unlike Pelagius, he observed that children do, in fact, suffer the effects of the sins of their fathers without sharing their guilt. Okay, we see this all the time. You can see this in society, right? Okay, you, you have some child with a drunk for a father, might face Poverty might face abuse, might face isolation, and a host of lost opportunities in life because of the sin of his father. It does not mean that he's guilty of the sin of his father, of drunkenness. Nonetheless, he suffers as a result of the sins of his father. And this seems to be true not only in modern society, but we find it also in Scripture. And I have a number of texts there in which this was the case. You know, perhaps uh, we might think of Achan. There in Joshua 7, Achan's the one who sinned, but what happens? They gather his whole family together, and they burn them all. Uh, So they all suffered for his sin, even though they were were not all individually guilty of it. Uh, We find, for instance, 2 Samuel 12, uh, where, well, in, in these passages in Samuel, at least one of David's children, and perhaps as many as four, ended up dying because of his sin with Bathsheba. Certainly that one child, the child that was born to them immediately, uh, died because of his sin. And perhaps others. You know, we, we, we find that uh, David's family sort of falls apart as a result of this event. So there are, there are people who, who suffered because of the sins of another, okay? Uh, and so this, I say here, this filial suffering, the, the suffering of the children, in such cases should be viewed as sort of residual or societal, but not punitive. Okay, the child's not being punished for the sins of his father. It's, uh, to use a sort of a, a modern phrase here, it's collateral damage, right? Okay, you know, so, so, so someone died, someone got injured or hurt, because he got in the way. Um, and uh, that's, so this is Arminius's view. So when Adam sinned, he didn't inculpate us per se. He didn't make us guilty of his sin, but he did end up causing all kinds of injury and damage uh, to those who followed in his train. 
So he argued then from this observation to the conclusion that while all persons in Adam suffer the effects of Adam's sin, including, including an inherited propensity to sin, they did not occur, incur his guilt. Guilt's personal. We incur it only when we consciously approve of Adam's sin by actually sinning ourselves. The end of the day, they come to the same place though. Okay? Pelagius and Arminius really deny the central teachings of Romans chapter 5, which says, when Adam sinned, we died because of his sin. And uh, furthermore, uh, we receive Christ's righteousness in the exact same way. Okay? Which brings us then, any questions up till this point? I see a couple of new new bodies have joined us here. The the Roman position would be the same as the Reformed on that, wouldn't it? Which which is? The Roman Catholic, would it be the same as the Reformed position? Um yeah, that's a good question. It, it in in theory, uh the Roman Catholic view condemned the Pelagian view. The Arminian view sort of stands outside of out of outside the uh, the question of Romanism, it's a Protestant heresy, so it's not so much a Romanist heresy. Although we do have uh, some some parallels in Roman Catholicism. Um, the okay, yes, I'll say yes and no. I think officially that would be the case, but in practice, a lot of Roman Catholics do uh, suggest uh, that Adams we we cannot be held guilty for Adam's sin. So. Um, there, there's, there's, there's actually dogma and practice within Roman Catholicism, and they're not always the same. Okay, so let's move to the Reformed position, which I'm going to argue is the only one that fits what Romans says. Uh, Reformed affirmed that in Romans 5, 12 to 19, the one sin of the one man immediately inculpated the whole race, and all humanity was held guilty of Adam's sin. We didn't actually sin in Adam. It's not as though we were all inside of him saying, go ahead, Adam, Adam, do it, do it. No, he's the only one who sinned. We weren't actually in there. Uh, It's the one man who sinned, as we see six times in this passage. Still, as verse 12 says, the legal effect was that all sinned. So when he sinned, his sin was imputed to our accounts so that we are born legally sinners. No other conclusion can be drawn than that the whole race was somehow inculpated in the one representative sin of Adam at the very moment he sinned. So Adam sinned, all sinned, Adam died, all died. Because Adam sinned, all died. Okay? That's the argument here. Which then brings us to this huge question here. How is this fair? How was it possibly fair uh, that Adam's sin could be, uh, uh, you know, the, the guilt of that can be spread out through the entire human race? So how do we and particularly in view of these passages that caused Pelagius and Arminius to stumble. say there's three major solutions to this problem. One is that these passages above that we've mentioned, you know, the ones where the child does seem to suffer because of the sin of his father, argues that the children actually did participate materially in their father's sin. So, for instance, God visits the sins of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them who hate me. Okay? And so the argument here is that the ancestor hated God, and his child hated God, and the third and fourth generation hated God as well. As such, we should not think of Romans 5 as teaching imputed guilt per se, but as the universally necessary fruit of corruption, okay? Uh, because everyone is born with a corrupted nature, they cannot help 
but affirm what Adam did. So everybody is born affirming, yeah, Adam did the right thing. I would have done it too. Yeah, go Adam. And so they're held guilty, not so much for Adam's sin, but because they approved of Adam's sin and would have done the same. This understanding does relieve the tension of contradiction between these texts, but at the expense of Paul's analogy in Romans 5 again. We received Christ's righteousness in the very same way that we received Adam's guilt. Okay? How do we receive Adam's guilt? It is brought to us immediately at birth. How are we, how, how do we receive the righteousness of Christ? It is given to us immediately at the new birth, right? Okay, so that's, that's how we receive righteousness, and it's the same way that we received sin. So the idea uh, that it's simply an affirmation that I like Adam or I like Christ, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not how, uh, how Christ's righteousness comes to us. Not because of our agreement or our, or, or our participation in his righteousness. It's not our acts of righteousness that bring us into heaven. It's his act of righteousness that makes us suited for heaven. Second solution is that all persons, however infinitesimally, participated in the sin of Adam. Again, so again, these, okay, you hear all these little squeaky voices, uh, all of us about the size of a molecule. We're all inside Adam saying, go do it, Adam. Eat the fruit. Eat the fruit. And so we confirm this nascent sentiment as soon as we're born, as soon as we're able to. This is, uh, we're going to look below here at the seminal view of imputation. Uh, for now, it should be noted the same criticisms noted above uh, for the first view apply to this view as well. We were, we were not all inside of Jesus saying, go to the cross, you can do it, you can do it, yay! That, that's not how it works. Okay, that's, that's not how Christ's righteousness came to us because we were all somehow seminally inside of him agreeing with what he did. Okay, that's, that's not how the cross works. The last view, and I think the one that commends itself for its simplicity, is the representative view. This denies that all men were materially present in Adam. So we weren't all inside of Adam actually sinning inside of him. Rather, it affirms that all persons were represented by him. We share in Adam's guilt not because we sinned, per se, but because he sinned as the representative of us all. These, it would seem, bear a greater burden in answering Pelagius, but not all are of the same mind in giving the details. Robert Dabney, for instance, says that a child may be guilty of his father's sins unless he truly disapproves of and reverses his father's practices. So, you know, so a child may not be guilty of his father's sin, but if he doesn't stand up to his father and say you're wrong, then he is de facto guilty of his father's sin. And since no son of Adam has ever done this, emerged from the womb, repudiating the sins of his father, then Adam's guilt, the guilt of his ancestors, may be legally assigned to every one of his sons, despite the two sects that we have in front of us. Others suggest that God stands outside the law. He's ex-lex. As such, he can make exceptions to his own laws at any time. So in Greenhill's commentary on Ezekiel, for instance, he says this, The law tieth not God's hands. He hath a prerogative above his own laws given out to us, but they do and must tie us, and we may not do contrary to them. So what, what, what's he saying here? Okay. Yes, in, in any human law system, it would be wrong for us to punish a child for the sins of his father. But God stands outside the law. And because of that, he can make exceptions to the law and does so in the case of Adam. Of course, the tension, of course, with that is that uh, 
God's laws are an extension of himself. Uh, so the idea of God being outside the law is, is a bit problematic for us, okay? Because God is himself the essence of the law. The laws of Moses that we read in the Old Testament are really a reflection of who God is, his character, his nature, and that's why those laws are what they are. So to say that God is ex-lex, outside his own law, is effectively to say that God may deny his own nature and character. So I have a little hesitation with the way Greenhill puts this. Which brings us then to the last, uh, uh, last one here, proposed here by Robert Dabney and also by William Shedd. He's probably the major figure here. Is that the Adamic administration operated on principles others than those practiced in the Mosaic administration. So it's an administrative thing. So it's not so much an intrinsically moral thing, but in the first administration, the first dispensation, as it were, these were the governing rules of the dispensation. Adam stands for us all. Once Adam has sinned, however, we move into the next phase of God's plan. So into the next dispensation. And from that point forward, no one suffers, no, no one is guilty of the sins of his fathers. Uh, that is, he ceased to represent, which of course then explains why I'm not guilty of my father's sins and his father's sins and his father's sins. And so, you know, capturing all the sins of all my ancestors all the way back to Adam. No, I'm not guilty of all those sins. I'm only guilty of the one, Adam's sin, because in his dispensation, the arrangement here, that opening administration of the way God operates in the world, that was the rule that God had established. Okay? And uh, the question's not an easily answered one, but the last view here, uh, Shed's view, I think gives us the fewest tensions. Any questions on that? I, I recognize this is this, this is a thorny question. Uh, why it is that we can we can be held guilty for the sin of another person seems unfair, and yet as we look at the unfairness of it, we say, I don't like that but I kind of like the other kind of unfairness that the righteousness of Jesus Christ can be given to me, imputed to me, even though I did not commit that righteousness either. And so we can't have it both ways. Uh, we like the fact that we receive from Jesus Christ that righteousness. We don't like that we receive the guilt of Adam's sin. But according to this passage in Romans 5, both of these have to be affirmed simultaneously or this analogy breaks down. Questions, thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah, I've I've got you over here now. I, I, as soon as I ask you the question, I look away from the screen. I'm not <laughs> actually looking to see if any of you are saying something there. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this imputation. See if we can't uh, uh, um, say a little bit more. So, so we talk about the union of the imputation. How are we united? With Adam, what what is what is the what is what is the substance of our connection with him? Okay, we already have have uh, raised this here: the idea of the seminal view or the realistic view, as it's sometimes called, uh, uh, of imputation. This is this was held by Augustus Hopkins, strong Baptist theologian, around the turn of the last century. Here's what he said. Human nature, in its individualized unity, existed in its entirety in Adam. Okay, so we were all wadded up together inside of Adam. So every person who's ever lived was actually inside of Adam. And when Adam spoke for us, he was speaking what we all affirmed. Okay, so Adam was the human race. Not because he was the only human, the only member of the human race, but because he actually had in himself all persons that would ever exist. Okay, so implied here is the pre-existence of all souls, all the souls of men, not their bodies, but all of their souls 
were inside the person of Adam. Okay? A key analogy is drawn from Hebrews 7. And, so to speak, it says, through Abraham, Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes because he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, so we're trying, that passage there is trying to establish the priority of Melchizedek over Levi in terms of, of the religious function that they had as priests. And the argument was that Levi actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. And you say, well, that's not possible. Levi lived 400 years later. But the, but the statement here is that Levi was still in the loins of his father Abraham. And when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi did as well. Okay, so that's his argument that, you know, when, when Adam sinned, we sinned too. Not because we were actually there, but because we were in his loins. And so he says, Strong says, when Adam sinned, all of humanity actively, truly, and really sinned in him. That's why it's called the realistic view, because we really sinned inside of him. And so all humanity is corporately guilty of the sin committed by the whole race that was concentrated in Adam. This is is rather an interesting concept here, because this whole idea of racial guilt is sort of making a revival here, right? You know, you're you're familiar with it as you see it on the news, right? That there there is there is there is this 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 uh, appeal here for reparations to be made, uh, for instance, to the African Americans, uh, because we whites, you know, the, the, the whites share a racial guilt. Even though we did not necessarily actually enslave anybody, we didn't actually approve of slavery, uh, we didn't abuse any slaves, you know, you know, why should we be held guilty for the sins of our ancestors and the and the answers that's being given in 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 certain quarters today normally in the political left is that okay yeah you may not have personally done this but you are inculpated in the whole race you have white guilt okay because you're part of the race that sinned against the other race. So, so all of, all of, all, all whites are somehow guilty for the sins of their ancestors. And you say, and, and, you know, up till this point, you say, this is, this is sort of bizarre here that, well, now suddenly it's, it becomes, comes center stage, uh, that this idea of racial guilt, okay? And the reason that this has become, was popular, and is popular again here, is that it solves the problem of alien guilt. Okay? So how how can I be held guilty for the sins of someone who lived in, you know, Georgia 200 years ago? How can I be guilty of his sins? Well, it's not because of alien guilt, but because the whole race committed that sin. And in fact, you you often hear it argued that, you know, all whites, the, the ship rose for all whites. Uh, when these whites in the American South abused uh, the African Americans, uh, their, of course, their financial stock rose. And so whites ended up with greater privilege. And that is shared not only by that generation, but all successive generations. And to this day, whites uh, have greater privilege than blacks do. Okay. And so that's, that's an argument that's, that's still out there today. Unfortunately, as we're, as, as we're going to see right here, uh, or perhaps fortunately, this view is, this view is incorrect. Okay. So let's answer this seminal view, this idea of racial guilt. First, there's no biblical evidence that Adam was his progeny. Okay. And, Hebrews 7 doesn't say that either. Okay, note the following. In Romans, in Hebrews 7, 
the statement that Levi paid tithes through, should be Abraham, is prefaced by the phrase, so to speak. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase. It's an idiomatic phrase that highlights that this is an analogy. Just as Melchizedek was not really parentless, so also Levi didn't really pay tithes in Abraham. Okay? So we, we, we recognize that this, this, this passage of scripture is filled with figures of speech. You know, it says that Melchizedek was without father or mother. Well, it doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It's just that there were no, there was no father or mother that was mentioned in the Genesis text. And it's not as though Levi really paid tithes inside of, of, of Abraham, but so to speak, in one sense, kinda, in one sense, we find that since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek certainly is greater than Abraham's sons. That's simple, that's the argument that's being made here. So the point of the passage is not to speak, to teach that one man can include another man in himself and perform acts in himself that are the real acts of both of them. Rather, it demonstrates the inferiority of Levi to Melchizedek uh, with respect to their priesthood. That's all it's trying to say, and we shouldn't make it say more than that. Secondly, the seminal view does not solve the problem of alien guilt. Okay, Unless our wills were consciously and actively participating in Adam's sin, the seminal view still renders us all guilty because of Adam's one free act. At best, we are guilty of some sort of unconscious corporate racial guilt, and that solution provides little consolation, which we all recognize. Anybody who you know, who is here, and for instance, who is white, recognizes. You know, you'd say, well, what can I possibly do in order to to uh, to escape the guilt of my white fathers? And what's the answer? Nothing. You're, we're just going to take, we're going to take a pound of flesh of you out of you and continue to do it till the day you die. There is no way to escape this, okay? And so there, it's, it's really, we, we say it's, it's no more fair to say that I am guilty of the, the sins of all whites than it is for me to say that I am guilty uh, for uh, the sins of Adam. Adherents to the seminal view respond that they deny alien guilt but allow for alien corruption, okay? So I, yeah, I'm not Guilty for that plantation owner who was abusive. Uh, I'm not guilty of his sins, but I'm corrupted by them. I have been corrupted. That is, we suffer from depravity, but not demerit. So when Adam sinned, he corrupted us all because his nature was injured and we received his sin nature, but we're not guilty of his guilt. But primary text, again, in view, is concerned with forensic matters, okay? Just as we received guilt from Adam, so also we received righteousness from Christ. Thirdly here, the seminal view cannot account for the fact that Adam's initial sin is the only corporate sin. Viewed consistently, the seminal view makes every person guilty of committing all the sins of all his ancestors in whose loins he once was. And that's exactly why Deuteronomy 24.16 is given. It says that we are not guilty for any sin other than our own in the present administrative order of God's economy. So, uh, and I, I, so I, I can say with firmness here, uh, even speaking to the political debate that is ongoing, that it is impossible for one person to be guilty of the sins of his fathers. Okay. All people are necessarily implicated by the sins of their fathers because they've actually committed all of their father's sins. And this is, that would make, 
Deuteronomy 24 say nothing at all. But again, the far most serious problem with the seminal view is that it destroys the parallelism between Adam and Christ. In Romans 5, Paul's chief argument is that the believer's righteousness comes to us from Christ in the exact same way that our sin came to us from Adam. Okay? And follow this here. There is no seminal connection that we have with Jesus, right? Jesus had no children. Yeah, there was, there was no one in his loins per se, right? Since Jesus, the second Adam, had no physical offspring at all, it's impossible that we could receive his righteousness seminally. He is not our, our parent. He did not produce us. So if righteousness can be received strictly by seminal means, then we can never get Christ's righteousness because none of us can ever be in, in Christ's loins. None of us can ever be born to Jesus physically. This is where A.H. Strong comes up with his rather famous view of ethical monism. And it really almost sounds like pantheism here. He argues that the whole human race, in fact, the whole universe, is absorbed in the all-inclusive Christ. Um, And that's to say that we share not only the sins of our fathers, but also the sins and righteousnesses of all humanity of which Christ was a part. In this case, the cure uh, exceeds the problem. It essentially amounts to pantheism. God is all, Christ is all, and affirms to and, and affirms universalism. We all receive righteousness from Jesus in the same way we receive guilt from him, and all of us get it because we are all automatically part of this ethical oneness. Governed by God. That's all I I recognize here. We're talking something rather abstract here. Uh, but we've ended up with a pantheism as his only solution. And, uh, this, this is what happens when you go start down the track of bad theology. You end up in some really weird places. And that's where Strong ended up. Okay. And so I conclude here that while alien guilt may seem to be unfair, you know, I'm held guilty for someone other, for a sin other than my own. It is no more unfair than alien righteousness. We like the latter. And if we want it, we have to accept the former. Okay? Also a problem with seminal headship. It doesn't explain how God escaped. Christ escaped original sin. Though he had no father, he was still in Adam's loins. Otherwise, we cut him off from the human race entirely. Jesus was born to Mary who was ultimately traced back to Adam and Eve. Okay. Uh, Strong has a solution as well, that Christ actually was born depraved, but when the divine came into contact with it, it instantly sanctified him. So Christ actually was a sinner for ever so brief a time. So in summary, seminal headship can only bring us to despair, No one is in Christ because Christ had no children. Universalism is the opposite. All humanity is in Christ, just as all are in Adam. But that doesn't fit what the scriptures say. Self-salvation. We're legally responsible for our own sins. Then we must be legally, we receive legal merit only for Christ's righteousness, our own righteousness. And then this idea of ethical monism, which effectively amounts to pantheism. So seminal headship really ends us up into some really thick weeds uh, that don't make sense of this biblical pattern. I know that that's, a, that's pretty heavy stuff here. I wonder if you have any comments or questions or thoughts uh, that could help uh, perhaps clarify it even for the rest of the class. Okay, if in fact seminal headship is the wrong thing, then what should we hold to? Well, it seems very clear that the text in hand teaches representative or federal headship, okay? 
the representative view our, that our connection to Adam is that he is our representative, not so much our progenitor, you know, our, 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 our biological father. It's not so much a biological connection that we have with Adam, although we do have that, but rather it's a legal connection. So it's, he's our representative. He represented us all and he represented us poorly. Okay. So God appointed Adam to act as the representative for all humanity and whatever he did affected us all. The guilt of his sin was judicially charged to the entire human race. Why does that, why is this so helpful? Well, the representative model alone accounts for the word. Okay. The word impute. Now we've not really looked too tightly here at lexicography here, but this word impute means to charge to one's account. In fact, that's the basic definition given in the standard Greek dictionary, to charge to one's account. In fact, the only other place where this is used in the Christian scriptures is in the book of Philemon. Remember Philemon uh, is the owner of a slave. Onesimus runs away steals money apparently from his owner, uh, Philemon, and ends up in Rome, meets Paul, uh, is gloriously converted under the ministry of Paul, and says, okay, what does this mean I need to do? I'm a Christian. What is my obligation? I stole from my master. What do I need to do? What Paul says, well, you have to go back. You have to go back and you make things right. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter. This letter, which we have in our, in our Christian canon, right? Book of Philemon. And it includes here a clause. If, if in fact, Onesimus still owes you something, you know, he probably spent some of this money that he stole from you. If in fact, Onesimus still owes you money, then make me guilty of it. That is, charge it to my account. And that's how it's translated right there in your English translation. Okay, this is what imputation is. Charge it to my account. Okay, we used to say it, you know, with their credit cards. Charge it, right? Okay, charge it to my account. That's exactly what is said that this term means here. It's a very uh, careful legal term that Adam's sin was charged to our account, okay? We might say it's a little unfair, but nonetheless, you know, sometimes that happens, right? You you end up, uh, something goes wrong in the uh, in the credit card transaction, and somehow you get on your bill a charge from somebody else or some charge that you didn't, and you get you get pretty upset about, it, right? Uh, and, and you say, here's a, here's a charge that isn't mine. Well, this is exactly what we have here with this term. You know, you, we look at our accounts and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's, there's a, there's a sin charged to my account that isn't mine. And we say that doesn't seem fair to me. Nonetheless, that's what the term means. And it can mean nothing else. Okay. Secondly, the representative model successfully accounts for the parallelism between Adam and Christ. Adam was a pattern for him who was to come. Okay. And we'll find it elsewhere that he is described as, Jesus is described as the second Adam. He's the second representative whose righteousness can be charged to our account. So we look at, you know, we, and so you get your bill and you say, hey, I, you know, I got a credit on my account here that I, I don't know where it came from, but somehow there's a hundred dollars here that shouldn't be here and we, we get all excited about it. We know it's, we, we, we look at it and say it's still probably not fair, but we don't object too much to that if we get a little extra money onto our account. Okay. But, but that's what the term means. And this is what it says here. Adam is a pattern for him who was to come. Just as Adam's guilt was charged to our accounts, we have extra charges on our accounts that aren't ours. So also Christ has put charges on our, he has, he had put credits on our account. But the fact is the credits that Jesus put on our account are far, far, far greater than the charges that were put on our account by Adam. Okay, and that's the point of Romans 5. 
Just as through the one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, even so by the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life for all men. Okay? The credits were far greater than the charges. Romans 5.15, if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. In exactly the same way, uh, death came to us, life came to us. Verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, sin reigned, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness excuse me, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then finally, wrapping it up, as through one's man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, in exactly the same way, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So there can be no question that Christ's relationship to the redeemed is that of vicarious representation. He was substituted for us. Christ's death substituted for the death that should have been ours. And the alien guilt, the merit that is not our own, was given to us even though we did not commit it. So we did, we did not do any acts of righteousness that should make us worthy to stand before God. Christ did them. Nonetheless, we received them in the same way that we got our sin from Adam. So Paul's argument is that both Christ's headship and Adam's headship have to be the same. Okay? That follows? That makes sense? It's called the great exchange, right? We gave him our guilt. He gave up his, gave us his righteousness. And so, and and again, there's, there's an unfairness, right? We, We might look at this and say it's unfair that Adam's guilt came to us. It's also unfair that our guilt went to Christ. And furthermore, it's much more unfair that Christ's righteousness came to us. And yet, that is the way in God's order it happened. Another question that sort of comes up here. Since the imputation of Christ's righteousness follows an act of faith, does it follow that the imputation of Adam's guilt requires an act of apostasy. This is something that Millard Erickson teaches here. I think it's a little bit of a twist of Arminianism, if I can if I can be so bold. So the idea here is that in order for us to receive Christ's righteousness, we have to exercise faith. So if the parallelism is going to be complete, then the only way that we can get Adam's guilt is by, how can I say it, an act of anti-faith or an act of apostasy. And so that's his argument. And this perhaps is a uh, something that we might expect from Arminius, because it sounds quite quite like an Arminian argument. But Romans 5.17 seems to give us the answer here. He says, it's, uh, Paul says here, that by the transgressions of the one, death reigned through the one, but then adds that only those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one Jesus Christ. So the analogy breaks down, if I can. So, you know, he he says here that the condemnation is not like the gift. There's a difference between the two. The gift is not like the transgression. The, The analogy is not a perfect one in every way. Adam's guilt is imputed immediately at a person's conception, but Christ's righteousness is imputed immediately not at conception, but at the point of justification. So we see that the, the, the parallel is different here. So not all persons in the universe receive the gift of Christ's righteousness uh, but all persons everywhere do receive the guilt of Adam, okay? Because the the gift is not like the transgression. There's a difference between the two. Okay, does that make sense? That follow? A couple of more reasons here why we should accept then uh, the representative view, and I think we'll probably uh, have to call it night then. 
Nah, we're going to keep going because I, I just got to get it done. <laughs> Let her see here. The representative model alone accounts for the fact that Adam's initial sin is the only imputed sin with the explanation that he ceased to represent afterward. And the representative model alone accounts for Christ escaping original sin. He escaped the sin nature through the virgin birth. He escaped sin's guilt by his legal appointment by God to be the second Adam. Okay? And I, and I, I think we can summarize this last section rather quickly because I, I, I'm, I'm sort of running short on time here. So I, I think I need to get at least up to that text box before we go. And it finishes up our section here. So, uh, hold on. We just, I just want to make some of the key points here. The, the imputation here that we received, that we, the, the sin that we received is immediate. It's not, if I can say what, what the opposite of immediate would be mediated. Okay. So the guilt that we receive from Adam is not mediated by some sort of sin of our own. Rather, it is immediate. There is no mediation. Just like there is no mediation between our righteousnesses, righteousness in Christ. We do not have to, we do not have to commit acts of righteousness in order to earn the rest. Okay. And so we see this very clearly in this text. And if I can rather quickly, there's immediacy of death. As one man entered into the world, all people died. Okay? And you see there on that paragraph underneath, Paul does not say that just as Adam sinned and died, so also we sinned and died. Instead, he says, just as Adam sinned and he died, so also Adam sinned and we died. The grammar does not allow for immediate imputation. It's immediate. As soon as Adam sinned, every single one of his descendants also died. And with that, then, when we died, our condemnation was equally immediate, as the texts go on to say. And for that reason, then, third step here, our sinfulness was immediate. Through the one man's disobedience, we were all made sinners. Uh, so it's not as though we were simply made guilty, but we were actually rendered sinners. And then, uh, thankfully, we can say, in, in the face of all that immediate sinfulness and condemnation and judgment and death, Christ's righteousness is equally as immediate. And that's a grand thought to sort of summarize with, right? Uh, the, the fact that uh, when, when Christ came and died on the cross, it is not as though we have to complete some sort of righteousness or to do some acts in order to make us worthy of receiving the totality of Christ's righteousness. Uh, and again, that's, again, that, as, as Dave said here, that, that's sort of the Romanist understanding. That Christ has a righteousness out there, but it's elusive. We sort of have to do our own righteousnesses in order to complement that and in order to complete the package. It's not as though Christ's righteousness is enough. We have to complement it with our own righteousnesses. But just as sin was immediate and sinfulness was immediate and condemnation was immediate and death was immediate, so also righteousness and life were equally immediate. And that's a grand thought. And so uh, even though we're concentrating in this section on sin and its effects on mankind, uh, the fact is that we're able to, to view here the opposite as well. So not only our sin, condemnation, judgment, uh, ours in Adam immediately, so also do we have righteousness and life and grace in Jesus Christ. So, and, and, and that's where we summarize. Man's a sinner. He does not become a sinner at the point of moral agency. He's immediately a sinner. Necessarily occurs at the moment of personhood at conception. Or else the possibility of justification is compromised, apart from the affirmation of the justice of the imputation of Adam's sin. There cannot be an affirmation of the justice of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Okay? 
Questions up till this point? When you come back next week, we're going to have to tighten our seat belts right away because we're going to start with one of the more difficult questions uh, that we can see in Christian theology, and that is this. What about those people who die without ever realizing a point of conscious moral agency? Uh, so an infant who dies or never even has the opportunity to be born or perhaps someone who has a mental incapacity or inability so that he's not even capable of, of understanding uh, the, uh, the the gospel and much less embracing it. Uh, what happens to those? Because clearly Romans 5 says that they are imputed the guilt of Adam. How is it? What, what are we to do with those uh, who do not actually have the opportunity, never get to the point of being able to believe? Uh, what should we do with them? And it's a very, very difficult question. And perhaps saying, you know, I don't, I don't know who, who all is in this audience here. It may be something that is very immediately painful too. So I'll try and be sensitive uh, with you next week. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's a topic that we need to talk about. Uh, because it's a real, it's a real issue. It's something that, uh, people face all the time. And so we're going to start our time next time answering that question. So hopefully what we've done up till this point, uh, can give us a good foundation, uh, to giving a, 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 a firm answer, uh, to that question next time. Okay. So unless you have any final thoughts here, we're going to call it a night here. <laughs>